I often joke that a lot of humanities courses and a lot of humanities discourse seems to act as though the goal of reading is a kind of find the racism treasure hunt where you approach a text and point out all the things that are problematic about it. And that doesn't mean that that's not valuable. And it doesn't mean that there's not a place within humanities scholarship and discourse to talk about the weird racial politics of a play like Shakespeare's Othello or whatever. That's not what it means at all. But it does mean that we seem to have abandoned some of the key mission of defending these on the basis of their aesthetic merits. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Today, I want to return to taking you on my audio tour of my new book of the Identity Trap. We are now, for those of you who have lost track, in part three of the book, the part where I critically examine many of the applications of the identity synthesis to our social norms and practices. And in particular, we are at chapter 11, which is looking at the rise of what I call progressive separatism in many of our institutions and the case for integration. Very briefly, we've seen a real trend towards new forms of separatism in institutions that are actually dominated by the progressive left, whether this is race-segregated dorms in some university campuses, whether this is affinity groups, sometimes as early as elementary school, in which teachers separate kids out into different ethnic group, or whether it is a whole host of other practices in our society that seem to have the purpose of getting students, as the organization Embrace Race puts it, to think of themselves as racial beings, to foreground the racial identity. And whereas at the beginning, the idea inspired by Gatry Spivak's notion of strategic essentialism was to encourage minority groups to take consciousness of their race status, the way that Marxists in the past might have wanted the proletariat to become conscious of its class status. Whereas in the past, this was focused on encouraging those minority groups to fight against the oppression of a majority group. Today, this practice also encompasses whites. It is now, in many cases, those who believe in the identity synthesis who want white Americans, white students, to own their whiteness, to take on more of a racial self-identity. I think that this is profoundly misguided. It is profoundly misguided, first of all, because we have 70, 80 years of social psychology research about the circumstances in which people actually come to understand each other and have more empathy for each other. According to intergroup contact theory, one of the deepest research programs in psychology, this happens when you have contact with members of other Groups And in particular, when that contact fulfills a number of conditions, when in that situation, you have a similar social status, even if you might lack that in society as a whole. When you have common goals, pursuing a joint enterprise and cooperating, having to collaborate in order to do so. And when the institutions around you are actually encouraging you to get along. In a systematic way, many of the practices that we're now adopting violate these ideas. They tell people that they can never have 
equal social status in any situation. If we must always be on the lookout for the hidden ways in which white supremacy, for example, will oppress them. They emphasize ways in which in every situation goals conflict, and they send the message that conflict is expected. When, for example, New York University puts on its ID cards a hotline to call when you have suffered a racial microaggression. I'm even more worried about what this is going to do to white students, not because they might be uncomfortable at certain parts of their education. I think being uncomfortable as part of your education is perfectly fine sometimes, but because everything in history and in the social sciences teaches us that encouraging people to define a some identity group is not going to make them less biased towards that identity group. Broadly speaking, what we've learned is that the way in which people self-define is very malleable, that it changes from historical situation to historical situation. But once you say, this is my group and that is your group, you're very likely to favor the interests of the in-group over that of the out-group. And so those white kids who are being encouraged to own their whiteness may in a few cases become principled anti-racist activists to claim their white privilege as their teachers hope, but will, I think, in many more cases end up becoming straight up racist and white supremacist people fighting for their group interest. Instead of encouraging a society of zero-sum conflict between different ethnic groups, I think we need to go back to and double down on achieving the good old-fashioned value of integration. Our social norms, our institutions should be pushing people to get into touch with each other more, to enjoy situations from sports teams to genuinely integrated religious institutions and economic corporations in which they are actually getting to know each other and working together. My guest today is Tyler Austin Harper. Tyler is an assistant professor of environmental studies at Bates College. He has been writing a lot in the New York Times and the Atlantic in the last few months in a very interesting way. And we had a wide-ranging conversation about the state of universities today. We discussed Claudine Gay's resignation from Harvard University, what universities need to do in order to become genuine places of free inquiry, why so many fewer people are majoring in the humanities and what it would take to generate enthusiasm for the humanities in a new generation of students, and what all of that tells us about the broader influence of the identity synthesis of a new set of ideas about identity in our society and how long they will sustain their power. Tyler, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Yasha. So I was hoping to talk about broader themes on the podcast today, and we will do that too. But since Claudine Gay resigned very recently as the president of Harvard, that feels like a natural starting point. For those of my listeners who perhaps aren't in the United States or perhaps aren't in academia or haven't been following over Christmas and New Year's every in and out of his story, what on earth just happened and what should we make of it? 
Yeah, so Claudine Gay nominally resigned. It seems like forced out would be a more accurate description um, in the wake of a series of plagiarism accusations uh, that began on December 10th, I believe. The first came from the conservative activist Chris Rufo, and they, to my mind, and I think to a lot of people's mind, the first accusation seemed sort of weak sauce. They were sloppy, but they did not seem egregious. And we should mention briefly, by the way, Claudine Gay, president of Harvard University. Oh, yes. President of Harvard. Absolutely. And over the last couple of weeks, the the accusations have continued to, to pile up, including some, I think, much more serious allegations that include full paragraphs repeated more or less verbatim without attribution. And uh, it seemed to reach a critical Critical boiling point on Monday, um, six new allegations were released by the Free Beacon, and that seemed to be the the sort of final straw, and she tendered her resignation um, yesterday uh, mid-afternoon. I think part of a wider context here is that, obviously, Claudine Gay was one of the three university presidents who appeared in front of Congress a couple of months ago, or a month ago, I think, and when asked whether or not it would be a violation of Harvard student conduct rules, to call for the genocide of Jews, she said, as did the other two university presidents uh, present there, that it would depend on the context. I'm torn about this because I'm a free speech absolutist. I think that we need to defend a very broad conception of free speech on campus. So I was willing to put up with her response. I had two problems with it. One is that she wasn't able to actually set out the case for that academic freedom, to explain why it is that it shouldn't be against the rules, why we don't want university presidents to pick and choose between the kind of speech that students would be able to engage in. The second, of course, is that it was hypocritical because Harvard on FIRE's ranking of American universities is in dead last place. It's not, in fact, a place that has respected free speech a lot in the last years. But in a broader sense, what does this moment tell us about the state of American higher education and the failure of universities to be places for genuine intellectual inquiry and debate in the kinds of ways that we would want them to be. The first thing I would say is that my uh, reaction to the hearing, I think, was probably pretty similar to yours in that I don't think any of the presidents gave a particularly compelling response on a kind of human level or even an intellectually compelling response. You're totally right that, and I'm sure this was shot through with plenty of legalese from their their PR and legal team, but th- there was not a an attempt to explain, as you put it, why exactly free speech is important and why we need to tolerate speech, even if we find it abhorrent. And so I thought the performance was really lackluster, but of course it got immediately co-opted by a sort of broader uh, set of conservative tax on elite higher education that stem from frustrations with diversity and a host of other uh, what are seen as sort of progressive policies and cultural norms at, at these institutions. I think the situation with Gay is particularly interesting in that, you know, I thought her testimony was the best of the three. Um, in, it wasn't great. She didn't knock it out of the park. But I also think, you know, she was asked a similar question. She's a black woman. She was asked a similar question about, you know, how would you respond to calls for black genocide? And she began repeating the exact same thing she had said about the genocide of Jews. And then, of course, the Republican congressman didn't want that answer and so cut, cut it off immediately. You know, so I think there, she had an attempt to articulate a kind of principal position, but that certainly didn't save her from the the conservative backlash. And I think what's telling about the plagiarism example is it's very obvious, I think, to everyone that it's largely a pretext, right? I mean, the first plagiarism accusations came out, I think, five days exactly um, after her testimony. And so 
The context is ugly. It's clearly was part and parcel initially of an effort to oust a president that conservatives didn't like. But then on the other hand, there's real plagiarism. You know, I mean, the incidents are minor, but they're plagiarism. I think calling them anything other than plagiarism is intellectually nihilistic and insane. Um, Plenty of people seem to want to and are calling it duplicative language and technical misattribution errors and all these kind of Orwellian euphemisms. But when you copy a whole paragraph of someone's language verbatim, it's plagiarism. But in terms of what it exposes about higher education, I mean, I think it exposes that the culture war has made everything partisan across the board, right? Like the attacks on Claudine Gay were partisan. But I've been shocked by how many academics have responded to the plagiarism accusations, not by saying, yes, this is plagiarism. They're minor. I don't think she should be forced to resign. And we should understand this as a broader conservative and donor pressure campaign. They've responded by saying, well, it's not really plagiarism or if it's plagiarism, it's a technicality or everyone plagiarizes, which is something that a lot of academics have been saying on Twitter, which I find to be a, a preposterous sentiment. And so progressives, just like Republicans, are circling the wagon. There's there's something really Trumpian to me about it, you know, where, you know, it reminds me of the sort of locker room talk and the uh, Access Hollywood scandal of 2016, where, you know, Trump used flagrantly misogynistic languages to describe sexual assault. And his, his defenders said, oh, well, it's just locker room talk. And that's how this moment seems to me, where, you know, a lot of progressives are, are using these euphemisms to defend conduct that coming from any other quarter, they wouldn't defend. What I think it reveals about higher education is really that the culture war has pretty thoroughly boiled it and it doesn't seem like anyone on either side of the aisle is much capable or at least willing of of defending what were previously normal academic standards. Yeah, so a few things in response. First is I watched the first two hours or so of of the hearing as well as a couple of viral clips that came from other parts of it and the whole hearing was something five or six hours. I didn't quite do that to myself. I put the performance of all three university presidents, Liz McGill of UPenn, uh, Sally Kornbluff of MIT and then uh, Claudine Gay of Harvard was very poor. I did, like you, think that actually Gay's was the least bad, that she came closest of the three to sounding like a human being rather than a robot and to actually setting out the reasoning as to uh, how she was thinking about that moment. The second point is that I also have been shocked by the full display of what Emily Yoffe has termed 180ism. You know, the sort of idea that you just have to take the opposite stance of your partisan enemies. And that was true of a bunch of faculty members who basically said, if people who we don't trust and don't trust for good reason are making these attacks, then any acknowledgement that they're well-documented and well-founded is a political capitulation. And so we are, you know, going to claim that something isn't plagiarism when it clearly is and so on, just to make sure that the bad people don't win. And I was struck even in the coverage in some mainstream outlets over the last 24, 48 hours, that that is how it was written about. The fact that these attacks on gay came from conservatives or came from certain activists on Twitter was so front and center, but you wouldn't actually understand anything about the nature of the plagiarism accusations from reading those texts. This sort of had some functional mention of it somewhere, but you wouldn't actually understand the substance of it. To go beyond Claudine Gay and and Harvard, how as a a young professor in the humanities do you see what universities are doing right and what they're doing wrong at the moment? To what extent are some of the most elite universities in the country still genuine places of intellectual inquiry that are able to 
make the students curious and to teach them quote-unquote critical thinking, a concept that I think you have some interesting thoughts on, and so the educational mission, and to what extent are they failing to do that? You know, I mean, I think they're failing in a number of ways. And the, you know, most acute way they're failing is that they seem to be really not facilitating a circumstances or a, a circumstances in which students and faculty can engage in good faith debate about difficult contexts. But also, professors aren't really modeling it either. I mean, a lot of the most recent sort of uh, installment of the academic culture war got kicked off on October 7th. Many academics had particularly, in, in fact, mostly at elite universities had a particularly egregious response to October 7th, calling it, you know, a counteroffensive rather than a terrorist attack and so on and so forth. In response to that, there's been a lot of campus protests. There's also been a lot of crackdown on speech in various ways. I think it's important to note that a lot of the speech that's been cracked down on is sort of pro-Palestinian speech and that this predated October 7th, right? There was a um, writer's festival at the University of Pennsylvania, which is actually what got Liz McGill in hot water to begin with. A lot of donors wanted that canceled and, and they wouldn't. So I think there's been a sort of free speech crisis that is part of a longer simmering free speech crisis, which you and other people have talked about on college campuses. But that was made particularly visible, I think, after October 7th. And what I find frustrating is that Universities aren't hosting, as far as I can tell, dialogue, discourse, discussion in or outside of the classroom that is bringing in facts and various sides of the Israel-Palestine debate and trying to have and trying to model for students. Right. Like you can have reasoned intellectual discourse where people disagree and that, you know, there are ways to talk about really fraught and emotionally distressing geopolitical issues that don't boil down to just screaming, right? And so I really don't think a lot of elite universities have lived up to their mission of open inquiry and free speech in, in a whole host of ways. Um, and yeah, like I said, it's really dispiriting. Whose fault do you think that is? Why is that? Because my tendency in higher education is always to blame the administration. I think a lot of what's worst about contemporary American university is the huge bloat of administrators who are not academics, as well as sort of factless university leaders, as, as we've seen in this crisis. I happen to know in this particular case from a few university presidents that they thought after October 7th, look, the way we deal with this as an academic community is to have debate and perhaps to offer some kind of spontaneous course that's put together relatively quickly, where scholars with different kinds of points of view can provide information and give people context and allow them to have an intellectual inquiry with disagreement and debate, but on the basis of actual academic research. And that they've had huge trouble pulling that together because faculty members, somewhat understandably, they had their plans for what they're going to teach and they don't want to take on all of the work of suddenly organizing a course. And they probably don't want to get in the crosshairs of campus activists or of all the aggravation that it would probably bring to be teaching about the Middle Eastern conflict in that case. So there it seems to me that all of that is understandable, but, but there is also a failure of vocation and of mission here uh, from those particular professors who aren't willing to do what it takes to create that campus culture. So what does this, you know, the difficulty of pulling together that kind of cause tell us about what has become not just of the administration, but maybe part of it, but also of our self-understanding as professors. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think cancel culture is always a buzzword. And I think people on both the left and right 
really get the nature of cancel culture wrong, right? Like everyone points to these high profile examples of faculty members who are forced out or bought out or journalists who lose their jobs or whatever. But those are actually pretty few and far between. And I think cancel culture usually doesn't take the form of, for the most part, setting aside these high profile incidents, doesn't take the form of big events, um, but rather it's kind of a background radiation, right? And I think it's really characterized by everyone assuming that somebody is out to get them or yell at them. And I've said this before, but I've talked to a lot of faculty members at various places who will say things like, you say a a lot of things I think in public, I I wish I could say that. It's like, well, you have tenure, why don't you say that? And they're like, well, I would get canceled. It's like, I really, I think you think you would get canceled. And, And what I think it often boils down to is that people don't want to be uncomfortable and that they don't want someone at their institution to think poorly of them. or They don't want to be have a talking to from a dean. And so even though there might not be actual material consequences of saying what they think, there is a kind of psychological consequence. And I think that psychological consequence often gets confused for my job would actually be threatened if I did X, Y, Z. And so, you know, that's basically what I think is going on with faculty right now is there are these real, totally reasonable material constraints. Like I already designed my course this semester. I don't want to design a new course. I don't want to have to prep a new course, do new new readings, whatever. But I think separately, there's just a real reticence to um, enter the fray because it's a contentious issue. It feels thorny. There's not, as of late, a really good track record of faculty navigating these complex issues with both emotional nuance, but also intellectual sophistication. And so I just, I think there's not a model for it. I think many of us have lost the ability to even do it in the skill sets. And we're all afraid that someone's going to be upset. And, you know, many of us are people pleasers and we want to please people. And so we'll just let the louder voices on campus yell and we'll sit quietly and, and privately tell our friends that, you know, we think it's it's a lot of hooey. So a few things here. I mean, one is that I, I've said before, I think on the podcast, there's idealists and there's materialists, there's people who think that ideas drive a world and people who think that material interests drive a world. I've become a dinner partyist. I think that certainly for American faculty members and writers and many people in my milieu, the thing that really drives them is how am I going to be treated and perceived at the next dinner party I go to? And they don't want to do something that might make people look at them a little bit weird at the next dinner party. You know, I go back and forth in this debate about cancel culture because I sort of affirm both sides of it, which is to say that I'm struck when I'm in Europe, as I am just now, how differently people talk, that they don't feel constrained in the same way. And I don't hang out with people who are bigots or racist. It's not that they say things that are somehow terrible or shocking. It's just that they express themselves in a, with more candor, in a more direct way, because those background fears aren't nearly as strong because of you know a set of factors, including material factors, like the fact that it's much harder to fire somebody in Europe. So I think there is something real where if you have that mass difference in how people act, it's not just because Europeans are somehow more courageous than Americans, I don't particularly think they are, it's because the incentives they face are quite different. Now, on the other hand, I also agree that it's important not to overstate the amount of threat that people face. I think there are some cases of truly arbitrary cancellation where people end up having very significant consequences for things that either they didn't do or that just really weren't egregious. And those then probably lead to an overstated sense of fear where people think, look, I'm just going to stay one mile away from the very unclear boundaries of what might get somebody in trouble, even though actually if you 
sort of in a genuine way stated your opinion from a place that's genuine, authentic, you'd probably be fine. So how do we break that? Because I think it needs to involve agency and structure, I think. I think it does need to involve people saying, you know what, now there's a moment where it feels a little bit easier to speak up than it did a number of years ago. And if you listen to this podcast, you should just have the courage of actually telling your friends and colleagues what you think about the world. What's the point particularly of being in an intellectual field if you don't do that? But we do also need to have a structural change that make people less afraid because the contrast between Europe and the United States indicates that there are structural factors that drive that difference in culture as well. I think there's an institutional piece and an administrative piece to it. I think that's probably the driving piece, right? Administrations soliciting open inquiry and encouraging um, and making it clear that debate is is not only encouraged, but acceptable and isn't going to be met with punishment. I think that's really important. But I, I also think the sort of individual piece is, is important. And I think if there's a sea change at some point, part of that sea change will have to come from more and more faculty and public intellectuals and journalists testing the water uh, and others seeing that the water's not too cold and it's okay to come in. So I think, unfortunately, that's part of it. I think probably for there to be a a substantial change, we need more examples of professors and journalists uh, handling difficult topics with nuance, with compassion, you know, without vitriol, uh, in a way to have the kind of conversations that are difficult but matter and that we often haven't been having or that we've been having through these extremely rancorous um, sort of partisan tugs of war. The culture needs to change as a sort of unsatisfying response. And like I said, I, I absolutely think there are, there's stuff administrators need and can do. I think everything ultimately flows from the top. But at the same time, you know, I, I particularly think professors with tenure have a real responsibility to use their tenure. It is extremely rare for faculty members to be stripped of tenure. And I'm constantly bowled over by the degree of cowardice I see among tenured faculty who uh, I know think certain things and won't say certain things because they don't want to ruffle feathers or they have some paranoic fear that somehow they're going to be divested of their of their tenure. So, you know, I think there's two sides of this equation, but I, I do think some of it has to come from individuals setting an example. And those individuals, I think, should be people with tenure because they do have protections that uh, many other folks don't. Yeah, I have two thoughts about the question of tenure. The first is that all things considered, I remain in favor of tenure because it does at least give some amount of protection for people who make themselves unpopular by saying things that others might disagree with. But I wonder whether the net effect of tenure is to make people less courageous because in a system in which you have some genuine amount of job security, but not complete job security, from the moment you have an academic job until you retire, you know you have a reason to speak your mind all, all the way through because you recognize that if you don't speak your mind, you never will. Whereas I think in a system where often until you're about 40 years old, you don't have tenure because the PhD takes a long time now. Normally it takes a, a good long while, certainly in the humanities and to some extent in the social sciences, also in the sciences, to get a faculty job. So you're spending years as a postdoc and then you have increasingly long tenure clocks, increasingly long periods when you're an assistant professor or perhaps an untenured associate professor working towards tenure. And so this is a period of time in which you both feel acutely vulnerable because there's this in or out moment that is coming up and you have a prospect of complete job security at the other end of the journey. 
And that, I think, is the perfect mix of considerations to make people think, let me just hold on long enough. Let me get to the point when I finally will have tenure. And at that point, I can speak out. But of course, by the time that you do get tenure, you have habituated yourself to playing the game for between 10 and perhaps in most cases more closer to 20 years. And then it's become such second nature that you are much less likely to do that. So I've become very ambivalent about tenure. All things considered, I'm in favor of it, but I think it has genuine downsides for academic culture more broadly and academic freedom in particular. The other thought perhaps that I have is, you know, why is it that those tenured professors are so cowardly? And part of that is the habituation we just talked about, that they got so used to being cowardly when they were on the tenure track that there's no transformation once they become tenured. But the other part of it is, I guess, the power of social ostracism, right? I mean, especially if you live in a small college town, if most of your friends and acquaintances are within your professional world, it is just very, very tempting, very scary, I guess I should say, to feel that suddenly there's going to be this moment in which people decide that you stand outside of a rightful moral community and must be punished for it because this is your colleagues, this is your friends, this is your neighbor, this is your social network. And even though you might not lose your job, even though you might be able to put up with not having any raises, not getting the corner office or having to teach at a stupid time because your department chair doesn't uh, like you, putting up with that social consequence is in fact a very severe sanction. Yeah, you know, I uh, I agree with both of those points. And I think to the acculturation piece, I'm a big fan of the French psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan. And one of the things he says is that we want to be desirable to those in power, right? Like we want to be liked by institutions and authorities and so on. But he also points out that we ultimately end up desiring, as he puts it, in the same way as those institutions and authorities. So we want to be liked, but we also end up liking the same things of the institutions in which we're enmeshed. And I think the point you're raising is is really dovetails with that quite neatly, right? I mean, many academics want their community and they want their institution to recognize them and think highly of them. But part of that process ends up flipping into liking and valuing and thinking the same way as the people who are, uh, you know, at the helm of those institutions. And I think we see quite a lot of that um, with tenured faculty. You know, I'm a strong supporter of tenure. Um, and I think one of the one of the reasons I feel like there is such a strong moral responsibility that faculty who have tenure or who are tenure track and have some security at these elite institutions like Harvard have to speak out is that increasingly the vast majority of academics or a strong a strong uh, plurality of academics do not have tenure, are contingent or part-time faculty. Many of them don't have health care. And uh, those are the people and those are the institutions that are most often uh, bear the brunt of assaults on higher education, right? So crazy stuff happens at Harvard and some or someone at Columbia calls the terrorist attack of October 7th a counteroffensive, but Republicans use that as a pretext to attack UNC or West Virginia University or these public schools and say, oh, there's all this crazy woke stuff happening. We need to defund the humanities and, and gut higher education, right? And so it seems to me that the most secure professors are the least courageous, drive the majority of the problems, and yet it is the poor and under-resourced professors in schools that don't have tenure that bear the brunt of it. And so there's something both uniquely cowardly and uniquely perverse when I see faculty that are 
at these elite institutions that do have tenure or that are relatively secure, and they refuse to speak out. Meanwhile, higher education, particularly public universities, is under assault from the right. That really boils my blood, kind of. And I think, yeah, I think tenure matters, but I I, I really don't think people use it. And definitely part of the reason people don't use it is the cultural forces you point out. And I mean, briefly, as somebody who, um, and I get along with my colleagues very well, but as someone who's at a small college and lived in the small college town for a while, I totally get the dynamic you're pointing out, that if you're at a small rural place and your colleagues are also your friends because those are the only people you really know, it can feel really daunting to, to say anything. But I do think the sort of, like I said, the the, the moral imperative to speak truth to power and to say what you think when you do have an immense amount of security at prestigious institutions overweighs or outweighs whatever personal feelings of discomfort you might have in my mind. I feel that way about being a professor, but also being a writer, which is to say that I have you know, the immense luck and privilege in life to be able to devote most of my working hours to things that I care about, to thinking about the world. And that is a wonderful gift. I do think that the one responsibility that that gives me, not a responsibility that is in writing or that anybody has assigned to me officially, but if I think about the situation seriously is obvious, is to say things that are or seem to me to be true and important. And if I think something that's true and important that's going to piss off my friends or my faculty colleagues, I think it's my responsibility to say it anyway, because a society in which nobody does that is going to be a worse society for all kinds of reasons, even if we often get it wrong. So we need to somehow remember that as part of, I suppose, our role conception. Let me push this conversation a little bit further in two directions. One is, how do you perceive most of the students today? We're talking about whether the ideology that is often called woke, I prefer to talk about the identity synthesis, is in the ascendant, or whether perhaps it has passed its zenith. And I wonder, I have my own impressions for my students, but I wonder how you perceive that in the students that you teach. What is the worldview? To what extent is it quote-unquote woke? And in what ways are they or are they not open to other ways of thinking about the world? Yeah, you know, this is something I've said on Twitter, and I say it all the time because I really believe it. My students are great. My students at my previous institution were also great. They are, in a number of ways, have consistently been more progressive than I am on certain issues. But I've found this generation of young people, even if they are um, much more progressive in certain ways than I am, and even if they are um, hold ideas that we might call, quote unquote, woke, I think my general sense and my experience has been that they're really open to changing their minds in response to new evidence and that they don't have as draconian and inflexible an ideology as, you know, I'm a millennial as people in my generation. I mean, from my point of view, the problems I see are people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. Like I said, I have political, uh, you know, or ideological differences between myself and many of my students, but I find them pretty willing to have conversations if you're respectful and if you present information calmly and reasonably and from a place of good faith. And so, you know, I think many of the issues that we see in elite higher education come from admins, they come from faculty, they come from social media. And I think there's a way in which students are, uh, they're not helpless, but I do think they're 
somewhat of, of a victim of the, the sort of machinations of their elders. I mean, my experience has, has been that, like I said, students are willing to discuss. Um, I just saw uh, writing about American fiction, uh, the new film that came out. And there's a scene at the very beginning of American fiction where, you know, the main character is this black guy um, has written the title of a Flannery O'Connor short story on the board, but the title has the N word in it. And, um, you know, this purple haired or blue haired student has a meltdown and cries and leaves the room, etc. And I love the movie. I hate that scene because I think it's, in my experience, at least the institutions I've been at, it's really not representative of, of most students. I teach Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, which includes instances of the N-word. I teach a novel from the mid-20th century by J.G. Ballard called The Drowned World, which also, it's a really important novel historically, but has racist archetypes and stereotypes. And I talk about it with my students. They're willing to discuss it. I've never had someone flee the room in tears. So I do think Gen Z gets somewhat of a bad rap. And they're also young, right? Like young people, I mean, Folks are pointing to kids on college campuses protesting and so on, and I, I get some of the frustrations, but kids are dumb and they grow up, and I'm personally much more worried about the uh, you know 30 and 40 and 50-year-old adults who think insane things than I am about a few kids. I agree with that. I mean, one thing I've been talking about as I've been going around giving interviews about the identity trap is that kids at the school that I went to for part of my education in Munich in Germany decades before I was at the school in 1968, marched down the main street of Munich shouting Ho, 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 Chi Minh, Che Guevara, Lenin. So there's nothing new about young people having some not-so-smart ideas. What was different at the time was that there was institutions that told them, no, in fact, we disagree with you and we're not going to do that. And I think what's interesting right now is the sort of failure of conviction of many of the people who are in positions of responsibility in our society. And some of the things that may have been, some dynamic that may have been productive in the past was the clash between the radical, perhaps well-intentioned, but in many cases misguided ideas of young people and institutions that were bulwark against them. And in the end, some good ideas went through and the bad ideas were blocked. When I interviewed Danny Cohn-Bendit, Daniel Rouge, the leader of the French Student Revolution in May 68, he said, thank God we won on culture and thank God we lost on politics. But sort of oversimplified summary of 68, right? But he recognized there were some things that they had been for that were terrible. And there's other things that generally made for societies freer and more accepting and more tolerant and so on. But it was the clash between the students and an establishment that often I would have disagreed with, that often was far too conservative or discriminatory or reactionary, that produced some of that productive tension. One of the things I worry about in this moment is that institutional leaders tend to think of themselves as actually being on the side of the students. You know, they tend to think of themselves as we are the radicals, even though we may be in the president's office or in the dean's uh, office or whatever, right? And then just the lack of actual principles and, and ideas. You know, I was just in France for a little while, and I'm always struck by the fact that both Republican values in France and their idea of what secularism uh, means are in some ways, I think, uh, overly rigid. I have a slightly different conception in particular of the separation of church and state than the French do. But the elites there still believe in stuff. I mean, people who are in positions of responsibility really have a set of beliefs that they're willing to defend. And it always strikes me how alien that feels to me as somebody who spent a lot of time in the United States recently. Yeah, you know, I, I 100% agree with what you just said. I think and the way I've often put it is actually through the metaphor of church and state, right? Like the administration is supposed to be the state and the faculty is the church or whatever, you know, however you want to sign those two things. But we're supposed to have a separation. And I think what is really different about our present moment is that unlike the 1960s, where there was, as you put it, friction between 
the more radical faculty, the more radical students, and then administration. Now there's a lot of blurring of those boundaries. And the thing that tension allowed in the 1960s was, and afterwards in the 70s and 80s and so on, was it was possible for administrators to say, look, they have free speech. These are not our views, but we're an academic institution. We uphold free speech. And the public could take that seriously because the admins weren't primarily seen as political. But now when you have college presidents and administrators and deans talking about anti-racism and decolonization, this and that, and when they portray their universities as engines of social justice, that firewall, that separation of church and state between the sort of administration and the politics of the student faculty, that breaks down. And so it becomes much harder for the public to trust when the admin says, well, we have free speech here. And, you know, we just got to let the faculty and the students do what they want. So I've often said, you know, I'm a leftist sort of Marxist skewing faculty member. And as a leftist, I want the admin to be out of politics, right? I don't want the administration to be spouting decolonization and progressive talking points because it makes my job harder. And I think it makes the institution more vulnerable to assaults, right? Because that the sort of good faith that there's there's a separation here, that's been totally boiled up. So yeah, I, I really agree with you. And just as a final point, you mentioned France and, and folks in power sort of seem to believe what they say. I mean, that's one of my great frustrations with the sort of DEI, anti-racism, what are you calling the identity synthesis discourse, particularly when it comes out of the mouth of deans and, and college presidents. You know, these are people that are sitting on multi, multi-billion dollar endowments that shepherd universities that have been basically reduced to hedge funds. And yet they expect us to believe that they are some kind of engine of political revolution. It's it's transparently a lie. It's transparently hypocritical. I really detest it. I would much prefer that institutions and admins went back to defending principles that they could uh, defend without hypocrisy. So yeah, I'm totally on board with what you said. Tell me a little bit more about the hypocrisy as you perceive it of a lot of the talk about diversity and anti-racism today. Part of that is in academia, but you've also written, for example, about trends in parenting that claim to be driven by anti-racist sentiments. I was really struck when I was teaching an essay by George Orwell this summer by a reference he has to the poverty of uh, socialist propaganda at the time. Of course, Orwell himself was a socialist, but he thought about all of his terrible writing trying to convince people to be socialists. And he makes fun of a book called, I forget the exact title, but it's, you know, the, the Child's Guide to Socialism or something like that. And of course, that immediately reminded me of Ibram X. Kendi's all-time classic, Anti-Racist Baby. So what do you see as the failures of that political ideology and language and what would it mean to be a genuine anti-racist in a way that cares about uh, social change and social progress without uh, just invoking those slogans that got you likes on Twitter two or three years ago, but don't actually seem to improve anybody's life? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm a big fan of the Black Marxist Adolf Reed. And one of the things that Adolf Reed always says is that sort of the pieties of anti-racism are really just about ensuring correct demographic representation among the ruling class. You know, so the way I often put this is that what anti-racism is about is that ensuring 13 percent of blacks are at BlackRock, right, or 13 percent of BlackRock is black and that these hedge funds and Wall Street and so on and elite institutions are sufficiently diversified. But it's not all about challenging income inequality or, or the sort of problem 
problems with unfettered market capitalism or anything like that. And all these people talk, you know, Kendi always talks about racial capitalism. But if you read him, it's very clear that what he offers is self-help for guilty rich white people. So I, I just find it, um, like I said, it's, it's steeped in hypocrisy. I mean, if Jeff Bezos can slap Black Lives Matter on the top of Amazon.com, you can't expect me to believe that anti-racism and Black Lives Matter are revolutionary projects, because if they were, they wouldn't be coming out of the mouths of the richest and most important people in the world. And so that's part of my frustration. I think the acronym diversity, equity, inclusion I support diversity, I support equity, and I support inclusion. But what these offices have really become is a smokescreen that exists to distract from the fact that elite universities in particular are increasingly built on mounds and mounds and mounds of student debt, right? And so we can talk about, you know, uh, microaggressions and white supremacy as, you know, asking people to show up to Zoom meetings on time. But meanwhile, we are saddling tons of students, including tons of poor and tons of black and brown students with, like I said, mounds and mounds of college debt. Right. So in terms of what real anti-racism would look like, I think it would be attending to some of the real structural problems that are embedded in academia, like the, you know, the student debt piece, like the rising tuition rates, like the fact that at elite institutions and elite universities, the minorities that are there are disproportionately minorities from either wealthy international families or from the upper strata of America, right? So a huge percentage of black and brown folks that are at places like Yale and Harvard and so on come from the top 20% of the income bracket, right? And so, you know, I think real anti-racism, and not that black and brown folks on all tiers of the economic ladder don't face different kinds of racism or or race-based problems. I'm not saying that, but I am saying that If these institutions were really committed to redressing racism and structural inequality, they would focus on helping and giving a leg up to some of the students who are most disadvantaged. You know, I went to a college that uh, had a real knack, is the way I'll put it, for finding rich black kids from prep schools in places like Greenwich, Connecticut. Uh, And what that allows them to do is have a model of diversity that is financially viable, right? Diversity that is endowment friendly. And so I think, again, if institutions really want to be quote unquote radical, as they always seem to suggest, then they could start prioritizing, you know, helping minorities get into college who are not in the top 1% of the income bracket and who do need financial aid and providing it to them. Yeah, and another element of that that's very interesting is that some Ivy League universities, at least about 50% of black students are the children of recent African immigrants from countries like Nigeria and Kenya and so on, who are wonderful students. But there's a kind of strange mismatch between the at least implied rhetoric, it is not the official rhetoric because it didn't pass muster in front of the Supreme Court, but the implied rhetoric of reparations and of, in whatever imperfect way, making up for the terrible injustices of America's past and then actually doing that in a way that doesn't always benefit those Americans whose life continue to be the most shaped by that history. We have a thought I have on, on Adolf Reed, who's been on this podcast. So if listeners want to learn more about Adolf Reed, go and scroll back until you find the, the episode with Adolf Reed is his thinking about the, the concept of equity as what he calls racist paritarianism. So he says that really at the heart of the idea of equity is the idea that we should reduce disparities between different races. There's always a problem of equality of what, as Amartya Sen put it, or I guess today we could say equity of what. So what exactly is it that we're actually trying to make non-disparate, but usually that is things like income or wealth or certain forms of uh, very visible positions. 
And what Reed points out is that you can have a deeply inegalitarian society in which the rich are very, very rich and the poor are very poor, as long as about 13% of American billionaires are black, because about 13% of US population is black. And so in that case, you'd have very similar incomes between uh, whites and African-Americans. And in fact, if we're pushing towards equity, it's much more likely that we're going to end up with those kind of carve-outs uh, within the elite, because they're easier for the most affluent to allow than to actually reduce the gap between rich and poor, between the upper middle class and the working class in a broader kind of way. So I find that to be a sort of convincing way of thinking about the limits of the concept of equity. If you bring it back to universities, I mean, if you, God forbid, were to be, and God forbid, because I tend to think that it's one of the worst jobs we might have, were to be appointed a university president tomorrow, what would you want to change? I mean, you've alluded to it a little bit, but what do you think it would actually take for American universities to go back to being places of genuine free inquiry, but also of places that serve the students and serve a society in the kind of ways that we might wish for? I mean, the answer I'll give you is a dispiriting one, and that is minus extreme structural change and change in the financial model. I don't know how that's possible. I mean, universities are right now, particularly elite universities, in an arms race to, as I often joke, turn their campuses into luxury resort experience centers, right? Where the dorms are always new and there's huge TVs on the wall and there's amazing facilities and so on and so forth. And so these places end up really over leveraged in terms of real estate. They have to rely increasingly on cash infusions from wealthy billionaires and hikes in tuition, right? And that's not an easy problem to redress, right? One of the reasons why billionaires have so much leverage at this particular moment and have been trying to drive, in the case of Penn successfully, to change change at these institutions is precisely because these institutions now desperately need them in a way that didn't always seem to be true. And it's much harder when you're as over leveraged as many of these universities are to tell one of your donors to shove it. And so I think one of the primary threats to free speech is the current financial model of the university, which is constantly expanding, constantly becoming more and more luxurious. Um, and that, you know, needs to uh, rely on a lot of sometimes uh, unsavory or if not unsavory, at least very politically motivated characters. And I'm not sure how you really fix that problem. I mean, one thing I would absolutely do as a college president is pull out of U.S. News and World Report. I think a lot of the general public sees U.S. News and World Report, which famously does um, the American College and University rankings. They see it as this kind of neutral and, and sort objective arbiter of, of what are the best colleges. But the way U.S. News & World Report assesses their rankings centers on stuff like endowment, right? So how large is your endowment? The larger your endowment, it will shoot you up the college rankings. That heavily disincentivizes the universities from touching their endowment for anything. Because if, for example, they wanted to use their endowment to provide more financial aid to students, then their ratings suddenly go down, right? Similarly, right, with diversity. This is one of the reasons why the diversifying that takes place on elite college campuses is usually, uh, as we were just discussing, drawn from the upper strata of uh, the upper economic strata of minority populations in America. Part of that is because diversity helps the U.S. News and World Report rankings. But if you can get diversity without tapping your endowment, right, and having to pay for it, that's all the better. And so some colleges have started pulling out of U.S. News and World Report. I think Columbia did last year, the year before. If I were a college president, I would, one, absolutely pull out because then that gives you some freedom to 
be more uh, flexible with your spending and to undertake other kinds of decisions if you're not constantly worried about, you know, U.S. News and World Report rankings breathing down your neck. But I also, if I was a college president, would be much more vocal about these problems. I would really halt new spending on things like dorms and stop this push to put lazy rivers on college campuses and, and uh, you know, turn turn universities into spas rather than places where education happens. Like I said, I'm pessimistic if that's even possible, because the financial model seems to me to be really sedimented and baked in. Um, so who knows how much how much can even be done. But I can at least tell you my first order of business would definitely be uh, stop participating in U.S. News World Report rankings. Let me ask you a more specific question about the humanities. You teach in the humanities. There's a huge crisis of enrollment in the humanities at American universities. And one of the interesting findings is at Harvard, for example, that you have roughly as many students coming in intending to major in the humanities than you did 20 or 30 years ago. Roughly as many students coming in saying that they express interest in the humanities at that stage. But by the time that American students have to choose what their major actually is, often in the sophomore year, they have dropped out of the humanities and gravitated towards either the social sciences or often, you know, computer science and other kinds of fields. Why is that? What do you think is going on where students at 17, 18 are still quite interested in the humanities, but once they arrive on campus and presumably take some humanities courses, but also get the broader messaging of the institution about what is a worthwhile life, they have dropped the humanities? I think there are two pieces. I think there's a piece that has to do with the humanities itself. And then I think there's a piece that has to do with sort of structural forces in higher education. Any college degree, any major gives you a leg up compared to having a high school diploma. Um, But it is nonetheless the case, as you well know, and as everyone knows, that some majors prepare you uh, and can catapult you into a much higher earning bracket than others. And so it is simply the case that an English major is generally not going to be put immediately on the same financial track as somebody who majors in a STEM major or someone who majors in in economics or, 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 you know, attends the business school. And as these institutions become you know, uh, as tuition skyrockets and seems to, you know, increase by a leaps and bounds every year and more and more students are taking on debt. I think a lot of students, you know, they get to college, they look around, they see that some of their peers have a plan to major in something that's going to send them to Wall Street or into consulting or into, you know, the medicine field and make kind of a business decision that, you know, the humanities are all well and good, but they're not going to put me on a track to repay the loans I need to repay. I think that's part of it. Part of it too is that that admin often doesn't necessarily push students toward the humanities. You know, many universities across the country have dropped gen ed requirements, have dropped humanities requirements. And so, you know, uh, students aren't always forced to take them. They don't discover that they like them and and that causes problems. You know, I went into college planning to do pre-med and to become a doctor. And I took, uh, you know, a humanities course because I had to and I fell in love with English and now I'm, you know, a literature professor. And so I think some of those structural pieces are part of it. I do think there is a sort of ideological part of it too. I think conservatives often say that universities or the humanities are declining because they're too woke. And I I really don't think that's true. Or it's not that I dispute that the humanities are quote unquote woke or focused on identity politics in certain ways, but I, I tend to think those structural forces I mentioned are behind the decline. But I do think there's a way in which 
the humanities have stopped justifying their stakes to students in a certain kind of way. And just to give you an example, I teach in an environmental studies program because a lot of my work is on sort of environmental literature, environmental film, and the history of science and so on. And I helm our humanities concentration in an environmental studies major. Our humanities concentration is absolutely bursting at the seams. We have tons and tons of students every year. It continues to grow, right? So the crisis isn't distributed evenly across the humanities, right? I think you see some places like English where a certain kind of student looks at our world and says, how is an English degree, A, going to help me land a job that can pay back my student loans, and B, situate me to understand the society and the civilization in which I live. And then they look at, you know, something like the environmental humanities. They understand climate change is is a growing problem, right? And I think the stakes seem intuitively, uh, the case is made a little more intuitively for them. So I think I think that's that's part of it too, you know? And I'm really re- resistant and have, have written about my resistance to the notion that the humanities need to be useful in some way, right? So I'm not saying that you know, the environmental humanities are more, quote unquote, useful than other kinds of humanities. But rather what I'm, I'm talking about is the sense that the humanities can illuminate something about the world in which they live, we live. And that doesn't mean solving problems, but it does mean giving a sense of, for example, the sweep of American literature and Western civilization. Like these are, are valuable things we can offer. And it doesn't seem to me that we make a great case for that anymore. Yeah. I mean, it strikes me that in many places, people are now going into significant debt facing an uncertain job market, getting the message, even though it's not always right, that you're likely to have much higher career earnings if you are in the sciences or the social sciences than the humanities. And that helps to explain part of the drift. At some of the elite universities, I think most students understand well enough that the fact that they graduated from those institutions are going to give them a lot of opportunities. And they come in saying that they're super interested in taking those humanities courses. And so I do think that there there may need to be a little bit more of self-reflection for those of us who are in the humanities or at the second, sort of close to the humanities, I'm a political theorist, which has a weird sort of in-between place, about why it is that they start out coming to our intro classes and then drop off, right? And that maybe in part because we're not making mistakes clear in a way that speaks to their desire to understand the world and be good citizens, but doesn't have to be useful in, in a kind of utilitarian sense. I wonder whether part of it is also a attitude of critical distance towards what makes the humanities beautiful. I don't know to what extent that is true, and I'd love to get your read on it. But there certainly is a strain within humanities where it's like, you know, we're going to hire somebody who teaches Shakespeare but that person better have a really critical attitude towards Shakespeare because that is what it is to be a serious scholar. And so people who went to see a play by Shakespeare when they were teenagers and fell in love with it, go and take a Shakespeare course. But actually, the person teaching that Shakespeare course wants them to understand how terrible and bigoted and racist and sexist Shakespeare is. Which, by the way, obviously, part of a university education is to have a critical view of text. And, but you should also be able to appreciate what is beautiful about the text and what is great about them. So do you think that sometimes the humanities courses end up being either too laden with theory or too sort of a negative in a way where people say, well, look, if it turns out that Shakespeare is not after all a great person, is not after all a great playwright, I guess I may as well go and learn how to code. Or do you think that that is too simplistic or perhaps too knee-jerk, sort of small-c conservative a way of diagnosing what's going on? 
No, I don't think so at all. I mean, like I said, I think the primary issues are some of those structural pieces. I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that as tuition has skyrocketed over the last decade, uh, you know, English majors have also declined. So I think I think that's the crux of it. But I at the same time do think there's been a real shift to just this deeply sort of critical attitude and not critical in the sense of critical theory or critical thinking, but critical in the sense of sort of, um, as you said, if we're going to teach Shakespeare, we're going we're to problematize as people often say Shakespeare, right? We're going we're gonna to talk about some of the issues and the racism, the misogyny and the homophobia or whatever that are embedded in his plays. There was a great piece in the Chronicle recently, and I, I feel bad, I'm going to totally forget the name of the author, but she was basically, I think it was a she, was making a case that humanities professors need to emphasize our passion again, that like these are are ideas and texts that are interesting and vital. And yeah, sometimes they're problematic, but they're also beautiful and fascinating, right? And I think we've definitely lost some of that. I mean, I often joke that a lot of humanities courses and a lot of humanities discourse seems to act as though, you know, the goal of reading is a kind of race, find the racism treasure hunt, right? Where you approach a text and point out all the things that are problematic about it. And that doesn't mean that that's not valuable. And it doesn't mean that there's not a place within humanities scholarship and discourse to talk about the weird racial politics of a play like Shakespeare's Othello or whatever. That's not what means at all. But it does mean that we seem to have abandoned some of the key mission of of defending these texts on the basis of their aesthetic merits, right? And, you know, when I was in grad school, first or second semester, I took this philosophy course with a classicist. And, uh, you know, at one point in the semester, I forget which of Plato's uh, dialogues we were reading, but we were reading one of the dialogues. And there was a moment that was sort of, you know, sexist or whatever. And the student was like, you know, started complaining about the sexism in Plato. And the professor teaching the course, who's sort of an arch feminist and so on and so forth, stopped that student short and said, we read texts generously in this classroom. And what she meant, you know, she's someone who's devoted her life to feminist philosophy. What she meant very much was not that there's nothing to quibble with in Plato, but rather we're going to start with an appreciation uh, from a place of enjoyment. We're going to try to actually wrangle with the ideas. And then once we've assessed the text on its merits and in its own terms, then yeah, let's talk about some of those problematic aspects. And so from my point of view, I don't think it has to be a trade-off. It doesn't have to be an either or where we say, we love Shakespeare, Shakespeare's amazing, or Shakespeare was a racist jerk. I think, you know, we can strike some balance between the two. And what seems to me to be the change in recent years is that we've lost that balance. And don't get me wrong, there are plenty of faculty members who exude love of Wordsworth or whatever, and that is telegraphed to their students. But I I do think there is this sort of broader cultural pressure to, like I said, treat all acts of reading as social criticism and as sort of politics by other means. And I think there's something silly about that. And I also think there's something dispiriting about it for our students. I just remembered this line that somebody once told me, which I think is helpful, which is write positive reviews of little known books by unknown authors or write, you know, write a negative review of a blockbuster book or a famous book or something like that, because that can be useful. But but finding some book that nobody knows about in order to tell people that it's a bad book is really a useless activity. And I wonder whether there's sort of been a change in the status of these texts in our society, where I get that if you live in a society that continually refers back to Plato and continually refers back to these various texts, and it's really this, in a deep way, structuring element of public and political life, then going around saying, oh, look at everything that's wrong with these texts might in fact be a helpful corrective. 
But we don't live in that world anymore, right? We live in a world where obviously sometimes these texts are referenced and are part of our cultural background, but they really don't have the centrality that they would have had in American or European life even 50 years ago. And so that makes this sort of like a learn about Shakespeare to realize what a racist he is just profoundly boring and pointless. Now, so the only reason to read Shakespeare is that you find value in his work, which sounds something aesthetically important, something explanatory about the world, something that tells you about the human condition, however you want to phrase it. Now, obviously, to fully understand and appreciate Shakespeare, we also need to be able to criticize the weird racial politics of Othello or the weird politics about Jews in The Merchant of Venice or the sexism in his comedies or whatever, right? Like, that is part of a full appreciation of a text, which at the universal level should be layered, should be able to live with the ambiguity of him being a wonderful playwright and also holding some views that today we would be displeased with, right? But when that isn't part of a layered understanding, appreciation of a text, but rather becomes, as we are saying, this kind of gotcha treasure hunt, like, ooh, and this is problematic and that is problematic. I think the problem is that it becomes impossible in a culture where these texts no longer play the central role to communicate why enough to do that. Like, why waste your life pointing out that a text is also problematic when the text just no longer has the central role in our society that would give that activity some kind of intuitive point? The thing I always say is that, you know, I'll have a lot of humanities faculty other places tell me things like, what do you mean the humanities have gotten more woke or focused on identity politics? Like, look at our course offerings or look at our major. They have to take Shakespeare. They have to take romantic poetry. They have to take the modernist novel, blah, blah, blah. And I always find that to be a willfully sort of abstruse way of thinking about it. It's like, it's not necessarily that the curriculum has changed. It's that the way we talk about the curriculum has changed, right? So I'm not saying that all of the humanities curriculum has been gutted and replaced with identity politics, but rather this longstanding canon and this longstanding way of framing our discipline has been, the, the way we've talked about it has totally changed, right? The, Shakespeare may still be a required course in the majority of English departments across the United States. But the way we talk about Shakespeare in those courses is very different than it was 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. And some of that is good, to your point. Like, we need these kinds of layered understandings. But at the same time, you're entirely right. Like, if, stu if the case we're making to students is that these texts are problematic and bad, why should they want to sit with them? Why should they want to major in English? Or why should they want to major in philosophy, right? I mean, I don't like teaching things I don't enjoy. Why should I expect my students to want to major in stuff that I'm telling them is, is, you know, racist garbage? You know, it's like anything. I think the cultural war is a war against nuance. And I think folks on the right and the sort of great books people want to sort of scrub all identity politics, all discussions of race, gender, whatever, out of, out of the humanities. And then people on the other side of the equation want to cling to it desperately. And both of those just feel deeply unsatisfying to me. And it feels really nihilistic to turn it into this zero-sum game where we can only have one or the other and where we can't have our appreciation of Byron alongside a reckoning with gender or whatever. I want to go back as a last question to the question of what students are like today and, and perhaps what they're like a few years ago. I broadly agree with your characterization. I think throughout the last 10 years, I found most of the students I've taught to be smart, thoughtful people who want to engage with big questions about the world, want to understand the place in the world in a genuine way. Like you, I find that many of them are sort of more progressive than I am or have certain beliefs that I don't share, but that's perfectly within the right to do. 
I do think there's been a little bit of a change. When I started teaching at the very end of the 2000s, people were very motivated by justice in a broad kind of sense, including fights against certain forms of oppression, but there really wasn't uh, the question of quote-unquote wokeness in the classroom. It didn't come from the students. It, it, it wasn't very present. Then I would say that there was a period in the middle 2010s where I started to feel that very strongly. It was a minority of students, but there were a number of students who really would go on those racism treasure hunts or sexism treasure hunts. And there was something very ideological about that small number of students. Most of them were still very pleasant human beings who wanted to contribute to class discussion and so on, but their orientation really was as true believers of a new ideology that they wanted to evangelize. And the majority of the rest of the students, I would say, was either sort of apathetic or sort of quietly critical of those ideas, but perhaps were, were circumspect about expressing their criticisms. What I find today is perhaps a little bit different still. And again, I'm, I mean, this is impressionistic and I may be wrong about it. But my sense now is that I have fewer students than five years ago who are true ideologues. I have fewer students than five years ago who really think it's their calling to go on that treasure hunt, to to enforce how you can talk about certain things and so on. But the extent to which most of my students now assume that some less extreme, less abstruse version of the identitarian vision of a world is just the natural prism on life has increased. Because at this point, for many of them, especially the students who've come from relatively elite schools, which is many of them if you teach at a top university, this is just what they've been taught since they were six years old. This to them is no longer, we are on, you know, we have developed this new ideology with which we can challenge our teachers. It's this is the thing that everybody's told us since we were kids. And because we're nice, smart, thoughtful people, we think that's probably broadly right because that's what we've been taught, right? And so then I find that you can sort of challenge it a little bit more easily, that actually my role in the classroom is never to convince people of X or Y, but it is to make them think. And if you give them some text that affirm their worldview, but also some text that challenge their worldview, I find them sort of a little bit more flexible than they might have been five years ago, a little bit more open to saying, oh, you know, perhaps not all forms of cultural appropriation are bad. That's interesting, you know. But I also find that this is the, the air they breathe. This is the water they swim in. And so I guess that makes me a little bit skeptical about some of the optimistic predictions about uh, us moving away from the hold of the identity trap. Because I think some people are saying, look, we're at a moment where Claudine Gay was fired. It doesn't exactly play in, but people sort of make that, that connection, you know, where suddenly there's pushback against these ideas. People are recognizing what they've done to universities. And so, you know what? Things are going to get a lot better. They're going to really change. And I do think that sort of we've rolled back some of the most extreme excesses of this ideology in the last few years. I think the most extreme instances of it no longer obtain. But at the same time, I have a sense that the sort of hold of these ideas in a softer way, in a more diffuse way, in the minds of my students and in the operating procedures of many institutions is still continuing to, to grow. And that makes me a little bit skeptical about the optimistic assumption that we were really seeing a turning point. So I, I guess I wanted to get your read on that hypothesis. Yeah, I mean, the way everyone is putting this is like peak woke, right? Have we passed peak woke? And I, I think that's like an institution by institution question, right? I think in journalism, I think in the media, I think among public intellectuals, I think that that's definitely the case. Like, I think we can see 
a broader spectrum of views being tolerated at this given moment. I think in academia, that's harder. It's harder for a bunch of reasons, part of which is that people tend to hold their jobs for a very long time and that, you know, there's it's just a, a slower moving culture, you know. So I think there's something to what you're saying. What I worry about, you know, you said this is the error a lot of these young people have breathed since they were very young. I think that is correct. And that worries me actually in a different way than I think it worries you. And the way it worries me is that people often tend to rebel strenuously against received wisdom. That's what young people do, right? And I think we're seeing this with the people who are under 18. I mean, if you look at particularly men under 18, they're way more conservative than Gen Z. They're way more conservative than millennials, actually. And so I think we're seeing a kind of identitarian backlash against what has become the received wisdom, which is the sort of what you call the identity synthesis, right? And so Part of what I worry about is, yes, I think you're right that there are some elite institutions that are just going to hunker down and just drill down further into identity discourse. But I think more broadly and among students, I worry about a backlash to identitarianism that goes too far in the opposite direction. You know, um, the line I'm always trying to straddle is a lot of these ideas are, are, are you know, a, a symptom of real problems, right? There is a real wealth gap in the United States, and that wealth gap is much larger between black and white people. There are real disparities between police violence and police stops and, you know, prison sentences and so on between black and white people. These are real problems that matter. But we've entirely lost sight of many of those problems in our sort of the pseudo radical, you know, jibber jabber we we've consented to using when we talk about things like anti-racism and so on. And so what I worry about is that we will have a backlash against identity politics that goes too far in the opposite direction and that tries to return to a kind of radically race neutral, a sort of radically uh, race and class blind way of thinking. When I think what we need is some measure of balance and an ability to say that things are much better for black Americans than they were 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, for example, problems still remain. We probably shouldn't think about everything through the prism of race, but we should think about some things through the prism of race. And so that's what worries me. I worry that as the identity synthesis becomes sedimented and as it does become the air we breathe, I think that increases rather than decreases actually the likelihood of, of a real backlash. Because, you know, like I said, young people love to revolt against the wisdom of their elders. And at this point, the, the identity folks are the elders. And I think there's some problems coming down the pipeline. Tyler, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Absolutely, Yash, it's a real pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.